Dear listeners, welcome, welcome, willkommen, bienvenue to the latest episode of the Europeans. Do I sound like one of those napkins you get in hotels with welcome in all the languages? Do I sound like one of those napkins? Yeah. Are they talking to you? That's a little worrying. Okay. Hi, Katie. Have you missed me? Hi. Yes, I have. Hello from Paris. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah. It was my birthday this week, so happy birthday to me. Oh, yeah. I said that last week, didn't I? You've got to stop just wishing yourself happy birthday on this podcast, Dominic. That's not what the show is about i'm just stretching it out you know um milking it for all it's worth but how's your week been uh it's all right it's been quite dramatic so as you know on the train to london last week i bumped into european supervillain nigel farage and um it turned out the way back was even more action-packed i was like just about to board a train back to london on monday night and uh, suddenly there was a small explosion and everyone started screaming and running for the emergency exit. What? Yeah. And for about five terrifying minutes, we really thought there'd been a terrorist attack. It was really, really horrible. And uh, it turned out that a passenger's phone had exploded in their bag. Oh, my God. Was it a Samsung? It was a Sam. Well, that's what the staff told me. We never actually got official confirmation. But one of the staff members told me uh, that it was a Samsung. So that was pretty scary. Like, watch out for those mobile phones, kids. They are way more dangerous than you think. That's horrible. Yeah, it was really horrible. Like, people were getting knocked over in the stampede. It was just really scary. And um, also, once the panic had subsided, we got back into the terminal and it turned out the train had left without us. No way. Without like 200 people, because a few people had managed to get on the train before the bomb scare. And the Eurostar people were like, well, better go on time. We don't want delays. (laughs) It was just like, what? And then because it was the last train of the night, we all got stranded in London. Oh, that's grim. Did they give you a hotel? I was wondering if I should ask for a hotel, but I did actually have somewhere to sleep. So it would have felt dishonest. Oh. So yeah, fun times. I hope your week has been a bit less stressful. Yeah, my week has been less stressful. I was really pleased to see that in uh, Amsterdam this week, there was a big sold out event at one of the top music venues. And it happened to be an event about European democracy. Isn't that nice? That is very nice. Did you go? No, I didn't. I didn't get a ticket, actually. It was sold out before. Sold out, famously. Hey, Um, but I've got some things to follow up on from last week. So last week we asked what an orb was and someone, my husband, gave us the answer. He said that the orb is a traditional symbol of the monarch holding the world in their hand and perhaps also indicates that they have the worldly power as opposed to the gods almighty power. So I'm glad that's been cleared up. Thank you, Thomas. Oh, he's also angry, this is my husband still, that I said that he didn't realise that Britain had an unwritten constitution two episodes ago. Apparently I made that up and he has not been letting me hear the end of it. So sorry, happy belated Valentine's Day, Thomas. I won't make up things about you on the radio again. That's romance for you. Um, what's coming up this week, Dominic? Well, we are very excited this week to get the chance to speak to Megan Christian, an atmospheric physicist who is currently based on the French-Italian research base on Antarctica, the Concordia station. It's literally the most isolated part of planet Earth. And she's just had to say goodbye to most of her colleagues as the winter approaches. So there were 80 people living there and now there are only 13. There are also like no animals or plants for kilometers around and it's totally dark down there as well well it's not yet totally dark i don't think but it will be 
in the depth of winter. It gives me the heebie-jeebies really thinking about it, but we're going to be calling her up and finding out what's been going on there and what she's doing because she's doing some spacey things as well, I think. Some spacey things. I love the like sheer extent of scientific knowledge on this podcast. <laughs> Before we get to that, it's time for Commemoration Corner. Now, I must admit I received some help from our Twitter following this week to find good things to commemorate in Commemoration Corner. First, we have the centenary of the independence of Lithuania, which took place on the 16th of February, 1918. Happy 100th birthday, Lithuania. Go get lit. Thank you, Adrian Murphy, for pointing this out and apologies for stealing your pun. February also sees the centenary of La Canadienza strike. This was an historic strike originating in Barcelona that lasted 44 days, shutting down about 70% of Catalonian industry at the time. It was very successful uh, as a strike because it led to the government adopting a law limiting working days to eight hours. So the reason why it's referred to as La Canadienza strike is because the strike started at an electricity company whose major shareholder was the Canadian Bank of Commerce of Toronto. Go and tell your friends about that and see if they're not impressed. (laughs) Some great pub chat in here. Thank you, Dominic. Um, Did you learn how to say happy birthday Lithuania in Lithuanian? No, did you? No. That's for next week. Okay. Also, Dominic, uh, there's been another anniversary this week, as you've already mentioned in the first, like, 30 seconds of this podcast, your own. And as a special birthday treat, we've actually got a special replacement jingle for Good Week, Bad Week this week, lovingly recorded by father-in-law of the show, Hans. Happy birthday. Thank you, Hans. That was beautiful. Musical skills really do run in your family, Dominic. Thanks, Hans. Who's it been a good week for, Katie? So bear with me because this is a bit specific, but it's been a very good week for very fertile Hungarian women because this week the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, announced that if you're a woman who's managed to give birth to at least four children, you never have to pay income tax ever again. Like what an amazing incentive. Lots of people have kids for the love and the joy that it brings, but why not do it for the tax incentives too, you know? Oh, yeah. No? This concerns me already. (laughs) Why would Auburn be struck by such an act of generosity, I hear you ask? Well, like quite a lot of countries in Central and Eastern Europe, Hungary has been experiencing an exodus in recent years. People heading west to countries like Germany and Britain looking for jobs, because obviously as part of the European Union, they can work anywhere, right? Hungary also has one of the lowest birth rates in Europe. Hungarian women are currently having only 1.5 babies each. And like every other country on earth, Hungary needs people to work and to grow the economy. Some other countries might look to immigrants to do that. That's certainly what Germany's been doing and even Poland and the Czech Republic are doing that. But Viktor Orban, if there's one thing that he's famous for, it's really hating immigrants, particularly ones who, quote unquote, undermine Europe's Christian heritage, a.k.a. Muslims and brown people, Mm. because Orban is a massive Islamophobe and racist. So his thinking is give birth to more white ethnic Hungarian babies and then you won't need to bring so many foreign people in to fill the labor shortage. Hence the tax cuts for mums with four kids, no income tax ever, ever again. Plus some extra stuff to make it easier to be a working parent, like more daycare places, which does sound good. But uh, we do need to remember that he's motivated by racism and xenophobia here. It's going to take quite a while for this to pay off because it's not like these babies are going to be able to enter the workforce straight away. But I will be quite interested to see how many mums are persuaded to have that second, third and fourth child because of the income tax benefits. Yeah, I don't like this idea. 
I'm one of four children and I'm very happy that I've got three siblings. So I advocate that, but I don't advocate doing it simply for financial reasons. It does scream to me of lots of very unhappy children and overwhelmed parents. Uh, quiz time. What do you think is the most fertile country in Europe? Most fertile or most babies? Most babies per woman. Okay, most babies per women. Let's say... I don't know. I'm not going to say anything because I feel like it'll be racist. <laughs> well, it's actually France. I don't know if that's what you're going to say. Really? 1.9 babies per woman. That is interesting. Mm. The country of love. Oh, maybe that's what it is. I mean, we do also have tax incentives for having babies here. But uh, I looked into this a little bit because I thought it was interesting. And if you look at what the experts say, they think it's probably more likely to do with France being fairly open to immigration and immigrants having tending to have slightly more babies. So in your face, Orban, with that plan. Ha. Huh. Who's it been a bad week for? Well, it's been a bad week for some people living on the archipelago of Novaya Zemlya or Nova Zembla, as they call it in the Netherlands and in much of the rest of the world. But let's stick with the Russian term because it's in Russia. Novaya Zemlya is an archipelago which exists in the far northeast of Europe. So it is officially Europe, Katie, okay? No complaining about me talking about Russia. I don't know where this thing has come from where I've like banned Russia from the show. I think we should let the people decide whether Europe counts as Russia. But given that Wikipedia does put this island in extreme northeast Europe, I will let you get away with it. Yeah, so um, there were some pretty extraordinary images coming out of Belushia Guba, which is a remote Russian town on this archipelago, after it was invaded by an influx of hungry polar bears. Now, I know that polar bears are lovely and fluffy and cute looking, but they are also rather terrifying creatures. And whilst there are only a few examples of polar bears attacking humans, it is not advised that humans and polar bears live together as it increases the chance of there being some conflict. Mm -hmm. I think conflict is a very... Uh, I don't know, funny way of saying polar bears attacking humans. Um, there were video clips of polar bears wandering around the town, entering blocks of flats past buggies and rummaging through bins. And apparently 52 bears have visited this one town in the past months. So why has this happened? Well, you guessed it. Climate change is definitely a factor. Polar bears need sea ice in order to hunt for seals, and the ice in the western side of Novaya Zemlya did not form this year, pushing the bears onto land that is also occupied by humans. It's probably not just climate change, though. It's been pointed out by scientists that these bears all look quite plump and well-fed, and this may be because they have discovered that in this town, Belushia Guba, there are some pretty incredibly welcoming dumps and rubbish sites that are very easy for them to access. And it's much easier for them to feed off the trash than to work hard catching the occasional seal for their dinner. Yeah. The bears have now been sedated and removed, but in all likelihood, they'll be back. Although, hopefully by then, there will have been some quick measures put in place to make the trash slightly less easily accessible, and thus make it less like an all-you-can-eat buffet for them. So, good luck, Belushia Guba. I hope you don't end up having to live with polar bears long term. Although, I saw quite a few scientists saying, yep, this is what's going to happen now with climate change. So, yeah, bad week Yikes! for the residents of that little town. We will post the video. It's really quite something seeing this bear just kind of wandering into a, a block of flats. And it's funny, like your instinct when you see these videos is to be kind of charmed by it because it's, it's such a funny sight. And there are some videos kind of putting these the footage of these bears against slightly comical music. Like, dum, 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 dum. 
but it's a really terrifying thing and not just for the residents i mean the fact that the ice is melting is terrifying in itself Ugh. but now we're about to head into somewhere even more extreme to a place that makes novaya zemla seem like it's positively metropolitan we are heading to a place that is arguably the most remote place in the entire earth we're spanning the globe this week people are going to think we've got territorial ambitions to start spreading out of europe because we've gone to the north pole we're going to the south pole but we are technically going to a tiny speck of europe in the form of the concordia research base in the antarctic it's a joint base run by france and italy and they been doing a load of really interesting climate change research down there. We're going to be talking to the physicist Megan Christian. She is spending an entire year down there. Some of it is going to be in complete pitch darkness, uh, which is a really terrifying prospect. I'm really uh, curious to see whether Skype works down there in Antarctica. We often have difficulty speaking to people in France, let alone <laughs> trying to speak all the way to Antarctica. Fingers crossed. Hello. Oh my goodness, we're in Antarctica. This is so exciting. Yeah, it's pretty exciting to be here. And we are so happy to talk to you. I feel like we should be shouting just to get the sound all the way there, but that, that's not how it works, is it? <laughs> actually, I can hear you really, really well. I hope you can hear me too. I can't believe Skype actually works there. This is magic. How, how difficult is it to get access to a computer? Is there like one computer that has internet or... <laughs> We've just moved into the winter period. Um, during the summer period, it was very, very difficult to get internet access because there were 80 of, or so of us, even 92 people at one stage, I think. And there were two computers available to, to Skype on. Now there are only 13 of us, so uh, it's, it's a lot easier. Although during the winter period, they also do cut the bandwidth. So it's not easy. It's all based on satellite and whether, you know, whether we can get access or yeah. So you are spending a year, I believe, in the most isolated part of the world. I believe you've just been abandoned by the vast majority of your colleagues um, for the winter. How did it feel to say goodbye and to be left with just 13 of you? Yeah, it was a really interesting experience seeing the last plane leave because over the last few weeks we've had the population of Concordia gradually getting smaller and smaller but finally on uh, on the 12th we had the last 16 people leave and so we all went out and waved goodbye to the aeroplane except for the poor IT guy who had to stay and, and talk on the radio to the pilots. It's a mixed feeling because on the one hand you're relieved because this is finally our home you know, for the next nine months and we get our own bedrooms and that kind of thing. On the other hand, you know, there were only these other 12 people <laughs> for the rest of the, for the rest of the isolation period. So, I mean, it's a great group, so I'm not worried, but it's a long time. It's a very long time. And just to be clear, like you don't get a single break away. There's no kind of holidays. You're stuck down there for nine months now. The closest place to us is the Russian base, Vostok, and that's 700 kilometers away. There is absolutely no oh means God. for getting there. I mean, it's it's too cold for any um, airplanes to work. And um, even we have one vehicle that we have to keep running during the winter so that we can melt snow for our drinking water. And that works down to minus 65 degrees. But yeah, here in winter, it can get down as low as minus 80. So <laughs> we're pretty isolated. Oh, my God. That is the last time I'm ever going to complain about how cold it is here. <laughs> wow. And what are your living quarters like? Do you have like a nice room? Is it, is it warm inside at least? 
I'm sitting in my office at the moment and it's a cozy 22 degrees. So uh, it's very nice inside. In fact, at night time, I often get too hot. Hmm. Oh, you can't just crack the window open, can you? We are told we're not allowed to do that. (laughs) So, Megan, you are an atmospheric physicist. What is that? On the one hand, I, I do the meteorology project. So basically monitoring the weather and making sure that the weather stations are all working properly. So that's that's one side of it. Another part is looking at the solar radiation that arrives here around the base. Basically the radiation that comes from the sun and the radiation that then reflected from the snow. Then a third part of it is, is looking at the, um, the pollution that there is in the atmosphere. Three very, very different aspects, but three areas of of atmospheric physics. And you're there as a representative of the Italian agency, aren't you? But it's a French and Italian base, is that right? Yes, I think it's actually the only base in Antarctica that's shared between two countries. How does that work linguistically? Like, how do people communicate with each other? It's a challenge. Um, basically, we when we communicate, we communicate in in a mix of, of languages in theory, in English, and it does make it difficult to, to make the groups interact because you have, you know, you have the Italians and you have the French and there are very, very few people that speak both French and Italian. So it ends up being a, a big mix, but uh, we're all hoping to learn each other's languages over the course of the year. You've certainly got time. Um, so how much of the work, how much of your work day to day are you doing really on your own? And how much do you feel like you're part of a team? Is it, is it very much everyone's got their own projects? Everybody has their own projects. And we help each other out with those projects. And basically what we're here to do over the winter is to take care of the permanent observatories. Basically making sure that the instruments are all running and they're sending their data and so on. So as an atmospheric physicist, I can still contribute to the other projects even if I don't have the expertise in them. So there's certainly collaboration. And we heard that one of your specific jobs involves firing a giant laser into the sky. What's that about? (laughs) <laughs> so that's called the LIDAR, and I haven't had the pleasure of seeing it in the night sky yet. But basically, like you say, it's this, it's this giant laser that fires into the sky and it looks at the properties of the clouds that it hits, basically. And it can tell us a lot of information about the processes of ozone deterioration. You've probably heard about the hole in the ozone layer. Yes. So this is um, important studies to basically see what kind of particles are causing that to happen. Because, it, you know, we've fixed it. We've gone a long way to fixing it, but there are still, uh, there are still problems. Is there anything that you actually have to go out into the extreme cold for? And if so, how do you prepare for that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Every day I go out at least once. Until now, I've been uh, I've been blowing up the the weather balloon and sending it twice per day. From now on, fortunately, it will just be once per day. And also, I have to go out and actually physically check the instruments, make sure that they don't have any uh, buildup of snow or ice on them. So I go out there with a, a little paintbrush and um, remove the snow from the instruments. Sometimes the paintbrush doesn't work, so I also have to use basically a hairdryer to try and get this this ice off. But that's basically what I have to do outside. In terms of preparing for it, we have some pretty good clothing that they've supplied us. Very, very thick, lots of layers of feathers and so on. And then you put on lots of layers underneath, lots of thermal wear and so on. At the moment, it's actually not too bad. When I go outside, I generally go outside in a t-shirt and a jumper and then with the Antarctic jacket over the top. Then, of course, I try and cover everything completely. So I have uh, a scarf and I have a beanie and a mask that covers the rest of my face. 
and gloves very important but not that much more wrapped up than you would be on like a sort of a cold European winter's day though that's good to know I'm not sure anyone wears a mask in Europe yeah. Katie maybe not but like what is the temperature how cold is it exactly like right now right now oh it's quite warm it's minus 30 degrees with wind chill minus 39 <laughs> wow balmy <laughs> Why is the camp built at that altitude? What's the advantage to being so high? The reason this base is here is for a scientific project that started more than 20 years ago, I think, called Epica, which was drilling ice cores. And basically, the deeper you go into the ice, the older that ice is. So they got down to some ice that was, I think, 800,000 years old. Um, and that means that you can do climate studies based on the air that's trapped inside that ice from such a long time ago. And then, of course, as you go up higher, you can then model uh, what's been happening with the climate over, over that many years. That's so clever. I have to close my jaw. Um... They're actually um, <laughs> doing a new project called Beyond Epica, which has just started and they'll start drilling next year to try and go even deeper. Am I right that they're using you as a kind of space experiment as well? Because people compare the isolation that you have there to what it would be like to be on another planet. Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, a nickname for Concordia is White Mars. Basically, because we are so isolated for such a long time, and also because we're at a high altitude, we're at 3,200 meters above sea level. And actually, when you consider the atmospheric pressure here, it's as if we're at 3,800 meters. So we get... Um, a lot of people get the symptoms of, of altitude sickness. And all these factors mm. together mean that it could be quite similar to an astronaut going on a mission to Mars. So they do a lot of tests on us every month. We get blood samples taken, urine samples taken, bone density studies and that kind of thing. So um, they're very interested because it's a unique opportunity. Are they monitoring how you're dealing with it kind of mentally and emotionally as well, or is that not part of it? In a way, it's part of it. Obviously, that's a lot harder to quantify, but we do have, uh, along with all these tests, we have questionnaires to fill in, um, which ask about our well-being and so on. And another interesting test that we do, actually, my favorite is the Soyuz, which is the Russian space shuttle. We have a simulator here at Concordia, and they've taught us how to fly the Soyuz. And then either every month or every three months, we have to um, do a test flight to see how well we've kept up our abilities over time based on how tired we are and um, our emotional state and that kind of thing. And we also have to do a bunch of cognitive tests to um, check our progress over time. Wow. It's like a giant game to entertain you every month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also sounds like hard work. I was wondering, going back to the psychological element, um, how did you prepare to go out there? Did you get psychological training on how to deal with this isolation? Yeah, we did. Um, first of all, we had a lot of medical tests first. Obviously, physically, it's fairly important since we're isolated here. We have a doctor, we have a hospital, but obviously it's, it's, if something serious happens, it's hard to get through that. But part of that were also psychological tests. So I did a 600 question psychological exam to see whether I was up for it. And then in terms of training, on the Italian side, we did a course with all the people who are going to Antarctica for the very first time. The Winter Over crew were also taken aside every evening during that course and we had a kind of one or two hour discussion with the psychologist to kind of uh, help our group dynamics but also to give us strategies and so on for, for how to deal with this isolation period. How hard has it been adjusting? Because you've been there how long now? When, when did you get there? 
I got here on November 22nd. Okay, and you're there till when? I'm here until November this year. But like, how hard was it adjusting to that reality? Like, oh my God, I am here for a really long time and there's really not that many people down here. I'm not quite sure I am adjusting. <laughs> we have WhatsApp, so it's quite easy to contact people back at home. So it doesn't feel like I'm that far away at the moment <laughs> because we've only had a few days of this of this actual isolation. And during the summer period, it was so hectic. There were so many things to learn. So I, I haven't really had the chance to stop and reflect on the fact that I'm, I'm really stuck here now. I'm really sorry if I've just made you do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not completely dark yet, is it? But it will be soon. No, at the moment, it's almost 24 hours of light at the moment. That was probably the hardest thing to adjust to, actually just having 24 hour daylight. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've started to have some some sunsets, but they're not real astronomical sunsets, our astronomer tells us, because the sun is not below the horizon enough. But in the next few weeks, we should be getting some real sunsets. And then sometime in April, I think the sun will disappear completely for 100 days. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. Katie, we were complaining about the lack of vitamin D here <laughs> in Paris and Amsterdam, but... Yeah, that's something else, isn't it? Do they give you vitamin D supplements, again? Have you got them out there? I Yeah, I brought some with me and I believe the doctor also has them. <laughs> oh, that's good to know at least. Um, and yeah, talking about uh, supplements, what's the deal with food over this winter period? Is there su one person who's a chef? Um, what kind of material does he have to or she have to cook with? We have a chef. He's also been here for all the summer period, although during the summer period there were two of them. We had a delivery of fresh ingredients, fruit and vegetables and so on, a week or so ago. And that will probably last maybe three months at most. Other than that, the chef just has to be very creative and, and work with uh, frozen food and tin food and that kind of thing. Up until now, it's been really, really good food. Is it a French chef, an Italian chef? He's Italian. Excellent. Wow, I was wondering how like the negotiation is to decide whether the French chef stays or the Italian chef stays. I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they were both Italian, uh, but during oh. at least during the summer period, they're very diplomatic and, and do a mixture of French and Italian food. <laughs> and in terms of like entertainment, when you're not working, like what are you doing? Well, we have a huge server full of movies and music. We have a gym. We have a ping pong table, <laughs> a billiards table, and um, there are a few of us who like to sing and play guitar and so on, and so we, um, we make music when we can. Obviously reading and so on as well. And I've brought several kilos of wool um, and I'm knitting little animals to give to people for their for their birthdays. Oh, amazing. You should just knit a massive scarf for the research <laughs> base and just like wrap the whole thing up. Oh. I know, it just reminded me, it's really not funny at all, but I guess you saw a few months ago, there was this crazy case on the Russian Antarctic base of this scientist stabbing one of his colleagues because he kept ruining the endings of books. Yeah, I did hear about that. That was just before I left to come here. But, oh you know, God, they, they were just that. the two oh, of them on the base... And they'd been there for, I don't know, two or three, maybe even four years, just the two of them. So, um, yeah, hopefully nothing like that will happen here. Just to be clear, I think he's actually, he's going to make a full recovery. He was taken to hospital. So, uh, yeah, maybe not a good idea to have uh, just the two of them. Um, I was wondering, like, is there anything that you're really missing already from civilization? I miss green, I guess. <laughs> I miss trees and 
a variety of landscape and you know just the just being able to go out and see something different whereas here it's actually very beautiful when you go out and and look at it but it changes very little so uh, a variety of landscape is probably what I'm missing I can't believe you brought up the <laughs> Russian stabbing. I mean, it was just, I could not mention it, you know? You've got to ask about that thing. It is awkward, though. Okay. Did you know about that case? No, I didn't know about that case, and it's terrifying. This American Life did a quite interesting uh, fictionalized version of it a couple of weeks back. That's there in the archive. Check it out. We would really like to thank McGann's husband, Liam Wyatt, for putting us in touch with her. I don't think anyone in the world has a prouder husband than her. The message that we got from him saying, you need to talk to my wife. She's a scientist in the Antarctic and she's like the best person in the world. It was just the most adorable message I've ever read. I realised we didn't even get onto the fact that she's been working on like cutting edge research around zero gravity. Yeah. Before she went to Antarctica as well. I mean, yeah. There's too much other stuff to talk about. Yeah, she's just too cool. She's amazing. For once, I feel like we don't really need a happy ending. Oh. But you're going to get one anyway. How do we defeat far-right politicians? I don't know. But what I do know is that there is one surefire way to annoy them with singing and dancing. Now, that happened this week in Italy at the San Remo Music Festival, the competition which was the inspiration for the Eurovision Song Contest itself and now is the means by which Italy chooses its submissions for Eurovision. This year, the competition came down to... Mahmoud, an Italian 26-year-old of Sardinian-Egyptian heritage who has criticised his home country, Italy, and the birth country of his father, Egypt, for their maltreatment of homosexuals. His fiercest rival was Ultimo, a white heterosexual selfie star. Can you work out which one the far right got behind? I mean, there's a few things to enjoy there in Ultimo, isn't there? Yes, yes, there are. And the competition ended up being quite dramatic because Ultimo received the most public votes. He got 46% compared to Mahmoud's 14%. But hey, as we now well know, the public don't always get things right. And just as in Eurovision, where the committee clocked on that certain countries were always voting for their neighbours and the public can't be trusted with making sane decision when it comes to music, San Remo had also realised that they needed to form some kind of expert panel to help form the jury and hey they are protecting you all from the basis instincts of the majority of people who vote for these kind of things so we can only be grateful this is coming across as very undemocratic jesus yeah i was gonna say does this spark the end of democracy as we know it probably but the happy ending to this story is that the expert panel went for mahmoud and that made him the overall winner yippee which i am actually very pleased about not just because i'm pleased to see a mixed race lgbt supporting guy win a competition in Italy. No, I'm actually pleased because watching Ultimo's entry, it was just not good. He sang quite flat and the song was really banal and whiny. Ultimo did not take it gracefully and attacked Mahmoud and the press in the press conference after the show. The Mahmoud song is just much better, I think, and therefore I will happily celebrate loudly that Italy's entry for Eurovision will be this intelligent, mixed-raced LGBT supporter, even if it pisses off Italy's populist government. And indeed it did. Italy's deputy PM, Salvini, saw an opportunity to be outraged about something, so he sent out some tweets criticising the voting process of the competition. 
But I say the perfect way to debunk the idea that this is all a left-wing conspiracy is to listen to both songs and compare their musical qualities yourself and make up your own mind. And the aftermath of the competition shows that Mahmoud is not just a favourite of the experts as his song Soldi went to the top of the Italian charts and also made its way into the international top 50 on Spotify. So congrats, Mahmoud. I think this is really good news, but this is bad news for the candidate that I'm backing... Bilal Asani in France, who's kind of a similar story. So like Arab LGBT role model. What am I supposed to do, Dominic? Who am I supposed to vote for? Well, as I said before, you cannot vote for the French entry because you live in France. So I've just, I've solved your problem for you. Well, can we do like a vote swap thing where you vote for Bilal so that I can vote for Mahmoud? Okay. Deal. Mahmoud said some really nice things in the press conference afterwards. Um, He was asked if he represented a new generation of Italians. And he said, for me, it is not a new generation. In my elementary school class, there were Africans, Russians, South Americans. For me, it's not the new Italy, but already the old one. Love him. Clever guy. Well, it's nearly time for the end of the show. But before we leave, we should talk about Patreon. Should we? Are people getting sick of it? Well, yeah, probably. (laughs) But if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, we've launched a Patreon and we have been thrilled with the number who have started supporting us. This week, we'd like to send out an extra special thank you to Lauren Burns. In Zurich. In Zurich. But thank you to all of you who've donated some money to help us keep producing this weekly podcast. If you're able to spare a few euros, dollars, pounds, anything really, the equivalent of a coffee once a month, then please do. Thank you in advance. And sorry, you have to keep hearing this, but head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Thank you, everyone. If you're not doing that, you can also just hang out with us on the internet and tell your friends to listen. We're around. We're everywhere. We're on Twitter at Europeans Pod, Instagram at Europeans Podcast, where I've been getting quite good at posting the story. So I'm very proud of myself. And uh, Facebook, just type in the Europeans Podcast and you'll find us. We're going to play you out this week with the sound of the Antarctic, as recorded by Megan. Her husband, Liam, sent us this lovely video, apparently, that she filmed of the panorama, except it was just black, which is what it's going to look like in just a few months' time. So imagine that you're there, looking out over the vast expanse of nothingness, and listen to the wind. We'll see you next week. 